Hello, this is Save As, a podcast that glimpses the future of heritage conservation through the work of graduate students at the University of Southern California. I'm Trudy Sandmeyer. And I'm Cindy Alnick. Trudy, today's episode could not be more relevant right now. I know. We're going to hear from our recent graduate, Kelsey Kaling Neighbors, whose master's thesis explored heritage conservation as a tool for urban resilience. Which is? Well... Here's one way to think about it. Urban resilience is the idea that in the case of a natural disaster, a crisis, a man-made disaster, we need to have a plan about how to recover and what are the things that are important. And so the idea that we can have this really comprehensive plan in place to deal with any kind of crisis is really important, and it's something that people are working on all over the world right now to come up with these plans. Kelsey's point is that historic sites and important places in communities are cultural touchstones. In addition to saving these places, we can use them as tools for helping the community heal because in times of stress, people want comfort and they want familiarity and they want identity and these places really serve that need in communities. And we can all think of a place that in the case of a hurricane or an earthquake that our heart would be broken if these places were gone or we couldn't in some way get to them. And so what are those kinds of places and how do we protect them in advance uh, and think about them as a part of this whole conversation about what are the important places in our communities that we want to have on the other side of some sort of crisis. Well, I tell you, not only do we have plenty of crises at the moment, but uh, the field, as many of our listeners know, is grappling with this issue of relevance. And I think this this uh, topic of Kelsey's really, really ties to that really well. So let's get to it. Here's producer Willis Seidenberg with Kelsey Kayleen Neighbors. Take it away, Willa. So before we do anything, can you define what you mean by urban resilience? Urban resilience is the ability of people and communities and really any whole system to survive, adapt, and grow no matter kind of what is thrown at it. So what kinds of chronic stresses and acute shocks that cities or communities may experience. Okay, so you talk about shocks and stressors in your thesis. What are the characteristics of both of them? Sure, so a shock is a event that happens to a community, and I typically kind of list these as it's the earthquake, it's the wildfire, it's the thing that kind of comes out of the blue And you might be aware that there's a risk for it, but it completely disrupts what's going on. So the explosion in Beirut was an example of a shock. The North Ridge earthquake in 94 was a shock. So these kind of big events that you can kind of list a before and an after, that is what something would be considered a shock. A stress, on the other hand, is kind of more of a long-term disruption that kind of weakens a system within a city. So oftentimes this can be homelessness or raising temperatures or 
income inequality, these are all things that kind of wear down the systems of a city and make it more vulnerable to disruptions. So both shocks and stresses can have rippling effects across various interconnected systems of a city, which risks failure of functionality at different levels. So a good example would be if we build up a bunch of undeveloped land in a floodplain or on a hillside, all of a sudden you're risking erosion, mudslides, large flooding events, uh, demolition of existing historic resources, etc. That increases population, that puts pressure on your water system, that puts pressure on your education system and your roadways. So all of a sudden you just have one small change as in I'm going to develop this floodplain and then all of a sudden it has these kind of wide ranging impacts that one shock or a stress can kind of have an impact on. So I often say that the main threat to urban resiliency or resiliency in general comes from climate change, urbanization, general population growth, and then increasing natural disasters. So have you found that it's not as common to have heritage planning as part of the resilience planning in cities? When heritage is discussed in existing resilience plans or planning documents, it's typically in a way of like, how do we prevent this place from getting knocked down in an earthquake or this historic port potentially may flood during climate change? We don't really ever bring people into the conversation who are heritage professionals or whose work revolves around more of the community side of heritage. So I saw an opportunity to talk about how heritage can actually be a proactive beneficial tool to cities and not just something that needs to be protected. So more proactive instead of a reactive use of heritage within resilience. Do you sense that among people who are doing this kind of work, the resilience planning in cities all over the world, I guess, that there is an openness to including heritage as part of the planning? I think so. My thesis advisor, Marissa, is now the chief resilience officer in Houston. And throughout our correspondence talking about my thesis, it kind of spurred conversation of who else can we bring to the table? So with resilience, a lot of what you talk about and a lot of the pre-planning that goes into creating resilience, at least from a policy level, is how do we ensure there's redundancies? How do we ensure that these systems, which are interconnected, are planned for with every, you know, kind of different facet that goes into it? So, you know, it's not just our electricity grid. It's, I don't even know, like there's so many different interconnected systems so how do we make sure that everyone is at the table and what we often miss in resilience planning is actually bringing kind of the heart of communities which maybe it's the small business owners or it's the legacy businesses or the people who own the 150 year old house museum is some of these kind of places that people relate to and feel like is part of their community we don't really include them in the conversations around how do we react to a disaster? How do we bounce back from it? Or how do we ensure that our community comes back stronger? 
And so, what, what are some I, of the advantages of including those kinds of people in in a resilience plan for a city that is looking at how to respond to disasters? The biggest thing I found is that encouraging heritage conservation increases cultural values and identity and actually increases social cohesion. So rebuilding a sense of community after a shock or a stress is imperative because there's this big event that happened or maybe it's this long-term event that happened, you know, economic instability or a pandemic. So what can we do to continue to foster a sense of community and networks established through the use of heritage or its conservation can actually provide support and access to further community resources. Um, not only that, but heritage actually brings people together through shared values, memories. So our cultural values and identity underlie the decisions that are made in the face of risk and aftermath of disasters or kind of long-term stresses. So cultural values through instilling pride and identity in place also inspire community members to take action. It's the reason that the Notre Dame raised enough money to rebuild only a few days after its fire. You often see struggling legacy businesses who've been in business for a hundred years kind of rally a community behind them and stay afloat for, for another year or two until they can kind of figure out their finances. So where we can tap into conserving heritage and preserving these type of values can aid not only how we feel as a community and foster that strength, uh, but it can actually encourage communication and recovery strategies that are you know, based in, in other elements of disaster recovery. You mentioned in your thesis um, that the community often has what you call traditional knowledge that can help with disaster mitigation. Can you talk about what you mean by that? Yeah, so traditional knowledge doesn't need some fancy academic definition. It really can just mean the learned history from a community. So with COVID-19 that's happening, we can often relate things back to the 1918 Spanish flu. So how did our communities handle that? Here in San Diego, we my work has, has kind of gone through some newspaper archives and found newspaper advertisements about uh, businesses requiring mask wearing, uh, all of these schools nearby moved their their kind of education components outside for a year. I know in San Francisco, the city hall operations all took place outside. So kind of having this longer community memory can actually show us and guide us how to respond to disasters. So oftentimes in academia, this is kind of goes back to kind of like prehistory or or some old indigenous knowledge. In, rooted in place. Often uh, a lot of work is coming out of New Zealand regarding some of their traditional knowledge. So how do we react to the environment of our place? Um, oftentimes people, you know, they knew how to sustain their environments and, you know, not pollute or, or not be stressed out by drought or flooding or whatever the community is facing. So how do we remember that and move forward and kind of codify those type of traditional knowledge elements in our resilience planning. So I would imagine that cities and states and countries have forever done some kind of planning 
in the event that there is something unexpected that happens. But clearly in recent decades, we've had a lot more disasters and problems. So, you know, climate change has caused a lot because of increased fires, wildfires, hurricanes. But this movement about calling it resilience and having a a structure, is that a more recent thing to the planning of trying to do disaster mitigation? Yeah. So as kind of like a a field or an actual position, resilience planning, I would say, has kind of come up in the last decade or so. There was a big initiative by uh, the Rockefeller Foundation called 100 Resilient Cities that was this worldwide initiative focused on how do we create strong policies that can be translated to different locations and cities facing a variety of problems. I mean, San Diego is different than LA, that's different than you know San Francisco, it's different than the East Coast. So how do we come up with and share best strategies for dealing with these problems that we know we all have faced forever. There's always been earthquakes, there's always been wildfires, but I would say how we start to deal with our infrastructure and our information systems in our buildings, we've started in the last decade or so to to think about how we're going to think about that from a policy perspective. So codifying it into codes and into kind of working groups, et cetera, is kind of a more recent development. How would you rate Los Angeles in doing uh, planning for resiliency? It's solid. Los Angeles, I'm actually quite proud that I got to study under the chief resilience officer in Los Angeles. There's always more that can be done, but the fact that there is an actual resilience plan is a huge step in the right direction. I mentioned 100 resilient cities. LA was one of those 100 resilient cities that did focus on having a chief resilience officer and setting up working groups in an actual document that intended to look at resilience of Los Angeles. But as I was doing my research and as I was writing my thesis, I just kept coming up with the missing link of heritage and even in Los Angeles or kind of across the country or you know the world really these strategies don't often engage heritage. They might discuss it. It's often discussed in like a UNESCO level, but more from an indirect perspective. So we need transformative action within resilience planning. So it's not just individual behavioral change, but it's innovation and infrastructure. And I just argue in my thesis that we need cultural considerations as well. So how do we include and prioritize historic and current cultural assets? within our kind of change-oriented frameworks. Do you think the fact that we have in Los Angeles a city office on historic resources is an advantage to having people who are concerned with preservation and conservation part of the resilience planning? Yeah, I would say the biggest benefit of the city office of historic preservation within Los Angeles is that they have a solid understanding of what Los Angeles's built heritage is. So with Survey LA and the database that that created has made such a solid understanding and baseline of what exists within Los Angeles. And we go down a whole nother rabbit hole of what 
in cultural heritage Los Angeles has that we might not completely have a solid grasp on, but from a built typology understanding, Survey LA and the city of Los Angeles is aware of what heritage resources exist. And from that, we can kind of start to gather what direct risks these heritage resources face. So having a department and having staff that's dedicated to the protection and use of historic resources kind of gives a, I don't know, already a seat at the table in resilience planning. So how we start getting these people to kind of all come together is another question and something that, you know, we still need to talk about. And beyond that, are there other examples of partnerships that either exist or should exist in Los Angeles to further this kinds of planning and protection of heritage? Yeah, I think there needs to be stronger communication just amongst kind of people at the grassroots level. So people who are actually doing the work of maintaining cultural heritage, whether that's, you know, a spokesperson for street vendors in Los Angeles or someone who does outreach for uh, certain dance programs, or that's kind of more the cultural heritage, but even, you know, museum managers or people who are, you know, architectural historians or, or consultants, I think can bring a lot to the table with the research they have and the knowledge uh, they have of their individual communities and the resources they advocate on behalf of. Was there anything in all of the research that you did for this thesis that really surprised you, really stood out to you that was that kind of wow moment? For me, kind of the biggest lesson I learned, and I'm not sure it was a wow moment kind of crept up on me, but on an individual level, we are the primary actors shaping our community in the environment that we live in. So we are central to what is lost or saved or created within our community. So if we think that heritage in these places and things that mean so much to us is vitally important to us, then we need to advocate for its longevity and we must work to make sure that it evolves with the community that we live in. So through climate change, pandemics, et cetera, it's up to us to make sure that these places exist and continue to exist. So I think honestly writing this thesis was a call to action for myself. How do we make sure that these places, how can I advocate on behalf of you know, places and things that sometimes aren't even tangible. How do we make sure that, you know, our neighbors and our kids and our, you know, the future of our community retains these things that make our places feel like ours? Given that we're living through a pandemic and we've had big demonstrations around racial justice, how do you think the city will and the country will be able to use some of the planning that they've done? Or do you think that there's a danger that some of this will go on the back burner because there's so many other uh, priorities? I don't know why we can't use heritage as a way to further a lot of these things that are priorities. So with the Black Lives Matter and racial justice movement, there has been a huge push for telling the full story and making sure that every member of the community, especially 
marginalized and minority members have their histories told and from an unbiased perspective. So, you know, as we think towards the end of, I don't, I guess not even the end of the pandemic, but just moving forward, how do we make sure that all these voices are heard? Like, I'm not the right person to be telling you what parts of, you know, certain communities should be preserved or what shouldn't. We need to make sure that we have those people who are actually, you know, boots on the ground living this, that their voices are heard. So when we think about planning for the resilience in the future of a city, you know, make sure that all these voices are heard. And it's not just an echo chamber of, you know, planning officials or government officials, but making sure that it's what the community actually wants to see. So within preservation, that could mean, you know, toppling Confederate statues, or it could mean, you know, writing historic context statements for, you know, the African-American community. You know, how do we make sure that we plan for a lot of these systemic injustices and how do we kind of start to fix that equity problem? And I think heritage can, should play a role in that. Do you have any advice for just ordinary people who are concerned about their city, about how they can be involved in these conversations, both about the resiliency planning and also making sure that heritage is a part of that planning? Yeah, there's kind of different things you can do. So a lot of my thesis focused on policy recommendations and to kind of be more involved in that, it kind of get involved, whether it's a neighborhood level or a city level, you know, write emails, show up to planning meetings, show up to community group meetings, kind of make sure that, you know, you are there saying, hi, I'm a member of the public, I deserve to have my voice heard, and I don't think we're doing enough. You know, things like that can actually make a difference. But other than that, it's trying to focus on vulnerabilities within your community. Is there a local business that's struggling? Is there a, you know, a specific cultural landscape or a park or something that's very special to your community, making sure that that is kind of upkept and kind of ensuring that those vulnerabilities are addressed. It's also kind of finding and filling your own knowledge gaps of your community can also be really helpful. We don't know what we want to preserve until we know it's there. And on a general level, I think we need to support education and access to heritage resources, making sure that we all have equal access to museums and education and spaces that drive kind of that social cohesion and feeling of identity within our communities. Yeah, and I would imagine that if you live in an area, say, that's prone to wildfires, if you know what kinds of historic resources might be in the path of a potential fire that you could focus your efforts on making sure that when or if the fires come that fire departments and city governments understand that that resource is something that needs to be prioritized. Sure and you know we kind of start hitting some of these kind of fuzzy edges of existing preservation because I would also advocate that you know a lot of these places might, you know, topple in an earthquake or a wildfire or have some sort of issue. And we need to start focusing less on material integrity and 
more on what those places are symbolic of and what they kind of give to our community. So ensuring that these places continue on even if they are damaged or have to be rebuilt or restored, kind of ensuring that the community rallies behind them and what they stand for. I think we need to start listening to the people and to the history that is begging to be told. So how do we tell the full story and how do we ensure we learn from that in the future? So within the existing planning fields, you know, it's kind of removing this idea that we know better because we obviously don't. There's always going to be, you know, community groups that were not fully incorporating or histories were not telling or a shock that we didn't see coming like COVID-19. So making sure that we bring everyone to the table to ensure that our communities move forward and are better and stronger and just healthier. And did, did doing the research on the thesis make you hopeful or depressed about the state of our ability to do all of that? It made me determined. I know that we have the pieces and they're on the table. We just need to make sure that they can be fit together. So how do we manipulate existing policies, existing community groups, existing working groups, existing planning documents to kind of reflect some of these things we're learning? whether it's the actual important importance of community cohesion or how important feeling identity to a place and to other people is. I think we all have learned that in this pandemic that we want to feel like we belong, not only to a place, but to a community of people. So how do we make sure that we're capturing that in planning for the future and in our recovery efforts? from pandemic or whatever future shock it will be. Thank you. This is really interesting. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Save As. Tune in next time for a fascinating chat about the Alcoholism Center for Women. I think that there are so many layers of preservation that have kind of muddled or distorted that that goal Um, And those are obviously shaped by race and class and power dynamics. And so wanting to to get to the core and to that essence that I think sobriety is, is often about. I had never even heard of this place. It's an unbelievable story. It has it all. Women's history, lesbian history, grassroots preservation, self-determination, social justice. I know I'm forgetting other things, so you'll just have to listen and hear for yourself. I'm Cindy Alnick. And I'm Trudy Sandmeyer. Save As is a production of the Heritage Conservation Program at the USC School of Architecture. It's produced by Willa Seidenberg with help from Xiaoling Feng, Lindsay Mulcahy, and Julia Ressler. Original theme music by Stephen Conley. Thank you to Tom Davies for technical assistance. Special thanks to the communications team at the School of Architecture for their support. For more information and show notes, visit our website at saveas.place. Be the first to hear new episodes by subscribing to Save As wherever you get your podcasts. 
And please share the love by spreading the word. Thanks for listening.